0: Americans are capable of achieving extraordinary things when they have the freedom and opportunity to do so. This is American Potential, and here's your host, Jeff Crank. Okay, welcome to the podcast. You know, we talk about removing these government-imposed barriers, and there's so many people that face, you face barriers in life. Sometimes they're personal barriers. Sometimes they're barriers that you've erected. But in so many cases, They're barriers that the government has put right in front of you. So prosperity is just on the other side sometimes of that barrier, and you've got to figure out how to get over it. And that's what Americans for Prosperity is all about, is breaking down those barriers and helping do that and break down these government-imposed barriers for individuals and for citizens, average, everyday citizens. They help day-to-day to aid in that effort, does Americans for Prosperity. And as the new year kicks off, Americans for Prosperity released its 2023 legislative agenda called Pathway to Prosperity. It covers solutions for the economy, such as making tax cuts that are set to expire in 2025 permanent, tackling the energy crisis by offering ways to lower gas and energy costs and reducing regulations and offering a personal option when it comes to health care that puts the individual in charge of their health care decisions. The Pathway to Prosperity agenda also offers a solution for a balanced budget by something called a unified budget and so much more. On today's show, we have Americans for Prosperity Vice President of Government Affairs, Akash Choghali, as our guest to discuss these issues and to learn more about how this will help America reach its full potential. Akash, welcome. Thank you for being with us today.
1: Thanks for having me on today, Jeff.
0: Now, listen, first of all, you're... I don't know that I, I don't know that I have ever met anyone from Rhode Island. I'm serious. I don't think I have. I've met somebody from everywhere else, except I have met you before. But I didn't know that's where you're from. You're from the the tiny state of Rhode Island, huh?
1: I am. Born and raised. I'm uh, I and I get that a lot, especially now having left the northeast <laughs> and not a lot of Rhode Islanders venture any further than boston or new york city and so i'm uh i'm the few the proud that the people know
0: okay so what's rhode island known for other than being this what the smallest state in the union right
1: yep rhode island is uh, it's actually known for quite a bit i like All to right. call it america's best best kept secret it's uh <laughs> it's bu- beautiful in the summer right people know about newport and block island beautiful beaches um it is the home of Dell's lemonade that people might be familiar with Hasbro is a, is a great company based up there that makes children's toys. And, and CBS, the pharmacy, headquartered up there. But the real claim to fame that I love, uh, my hometown of East Greenwich is the birthplace of the U.S. Navy. Wow. Um, yes, which is an often debated fact. I guess there's <laughs> another town elsewhere on the East Coast that claims the same thing. But during the Revolutionary War, it was where the first band of, of boats of, uh, of the revolutionaries really came together and formalized themselves a the Navy to take on the British. And so that's one of the, uh, the claims to fame that we have in, uh, in little old East Greenwich, Rhode Island.
0: Well, that's that's pretty cool, uh, uh, honestly. And, um, well, that's great. I mean, I'm honored to have someone from Rhode Island on the show, honestly. I, 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 I mean, I run into people all the time, but I don't run into too many that say they're from Rhode Island. And I also have this – I didn't know this about you, Akash – you you were on the Forbes thirty under thirty list in twenty sixteen.
1: Yes, that was yeah, I guess several years ago now. Um, but yes, as part of my work at Americans of Prosperity, I was nominated and to this day I do not know who nominated me, but <laughs> imagine one of our uh, one of our either current or former colleagues at Americans for Prosperity and uh Great honor that has allowed me to uh, to meet a lot of really fantastic people, even outside the public policy environment, through the, the events and the networks and things like that. People in in finance and media and you name it, uh, who are really doing some some impressive things.
0: Yeah, well, that's awesome. It wasn't me, I promise, because I didn't even know you're from Rhode Island, so it couldn't have been me. So now you can narrow it down, right? It could be any of the other <laughs> <you go>. hundreds <laughs> of uh, employees that that you work with. So. Mm. Well, good. Well, listen, this pathway to prosperity. uh, I want to talk about that. And I mean, there's a lot, you know, America is such an amazing country. It's such a great country. And we so have so many freedoms that I think many of us take for granted. Uh, Just because we're here, we take, you know, the liberties that we enjoy for granted, the prosperity that we've had, we take for granted. Because if you live in other parts of the world, you don't you don't have the kind of prosperity, the kind of freedom that we have. But there are also problems uh, that that we see on the horizon. And many times it is government pushing bad policies that limits our ability. And as I say, erects these barriers that need to be broken down and Americans for prosperity does a great job partnering with citizens all across the United States with our chapter state chapters across the country to, to help break those barriers at the federal and state level. And so, um, one of the things that Americans for prosperity has done is come out with this pathway to prosperity, which is kind of our federal agenda on these issues. Talk about in general, what pathway to prosperity is.
1: Yeah, that's, that's exactly kind of what it is that you alluded to, right? We are obviously so blessed to live in this country. I mean, you know, I, I speak for myself. My parents are immigrants. They came here with very little and and would not trade it for, for a day anywhere else. Right. Um, you know, we have the ability to, to do and be anything we want in this country so long as we're willing to work for it and, and you know, have a little bit of luck and put our minds to it. Uh, and it's really, I think, the American dream is that the circumstances of your life do not, or of your birth do not determine the circumstances of your life. But, unfortunately, as you alluded to, too, too often public policy gets in the way, right? Public policy too often makes it harder for people to climb that socioeconomic ladder, right? It makes things more expensive for people. It makes it harder to make ends meet. It makes it harder to start a business or harder to find a job, harder to earn a bigger paycheck. Um, and, you know, that could be things like government spending, crowding out private investments. That could be things like regulation, making it too expensive to do business. That could be things like labor rules that are, you know, forcing you to deduct money from your paycheck or our immigration system, what have you. And so what we have done with the Pathway to Prosperity is laid out a set of reforms across across several issue areas um, to address those barriers, right, those barriers to opportunity and prosperity that we want Congress to focus this year, next year, this, this session of Congress that we're in. These are the issues that we want them to focus on that can help drive us towards an abundance agenda that can really increase opportunity and prosperity in this country uh, for those who need it most.
0: Okay, so let's talk about the tax cuts, and uh, first and foremost making these tax cuts permanent. the These tax cuts, which, of course, we always have this argument every time there is a discussion about cutting taxes, about what the impact is on the federal budget. Every time they do it, revenue to the federal government explodes. I mean, the, the revenue is as high as it's ever been, correct? Uh, because of these tax cuts and, and the unleashing of the American economy when they passed.
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean again, whether it's because of the tax cuts or not, our revenue goes up every single year, right? And so, um, if you're concerned about the revenue, our issue is a spending problem, not a right. revenue problem. Yes. We bring in trillions and trillions and trillions of dollars, no matter what we're doing with our tax code and, and tweaking it around the margin. We spend far too much money, right? And and we'll talk about that when we get to the federal budget stuff, but Um, You know, our spending grows on autopilot. We don't follow the federal budget process. And there's quite a bit we can do on the budget and spending side to address that while still giving back people more of their hard-earned money. And so folks might remember back in 2017, Congress passed sweeping tax reform. It was the biggest tax reform in a generation since the 1980s. Two of the things that those tax reforms did, one was it cut the corporate income tax rate, right, Um, which was going to mean more return on investment, for corporations, for businesses, they can reinvest, expand operations, return money to shareholders, increase their workers' wages. And we saw all of that happen in the years after the tax cut. Those tax cuts on the business side were permanent. They were permanent because businesses need that kind of certainty and stability to make long-term investments. Right? If you've got a big corporation that's making investments over you know, 15, 20 years, those are billions and billions of dollars. It helps to know that the tax code is not going to change in that time. On the individual side, we also cut tax rates across the board in this country. 96% of all taxpayers got a tax cut um, on the individual side. Unfortunately, because of the, the weird budget rules that Congress has to function under, those tax cuts were temporary and that they were going to sunset or expire after eight years. So we want to make those permanent because, again, just like businesses, we want individuals and families to have certainty that their taxes are not to fill up just because tax cuts that they supported, that Congress still supports, just happened to expire under the law. So that's what we're really focused on, making permanent the tax cuts that were originally temporary passed a few years back.
0: So you, you've talked about the revenue side. Let's talk about the spending side a little bit. Uh, we, we, we need to get our fiscal house in order. You talked about this not being a revenue problem. It's a spending problem. I think everybody except for maybe the vast majority of uh, members of Congress understand that spending is the problem I mean we we are spending far more than we take in because those are the decisions that Congress makes. What kind of changes can we make in our spending in our spending priorities and budgetary reforms that could make a difference here for the American people?
1: yeah absolutely there, there's basically two things we can do one is we can fix our broken budget process and two, as far as what we're doing, we can follow the budget process, and two, we can fix how the process itself works. And so what I mean by that is that right now, Congress just does not even follow the budget process that it's supposed to, that's it's required to by law. They've not followed what's called regular budget order in 25 years. So right. We get into this situation every year where they have this $1 trillion, $2 trillion must-pass government funding bill every December, uh, and it's aptly comes to be known as a Christmas tree, right, where all kinds of random things are jammed into it. Um, that are wasteful, fraudulent, they're, they're abused, they're, they're pet projects and districts, things like that, um, which, again, are, are not often huge in dollar amounts. But the principle of a government that's transparent, accountable, and, and a responsible steward of taxpayer dollars is simply not the case when we get into that situation at the end of every year. The other is that the vast, vast majority of our spending isn't even included in that process to begin with. It grows on autopilot, which means Congress never touches it never debates it. Is never forced to confront reform of these programs. That's on the mandatory spending side, right? And those are primarily our entitlement programs like Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security, Obamacare, and then our debt interest, right? The interest on, on what we're borrowing, which, of course, we have to pay back. Those things, the mandatory spending that are going on autopilot, comprise more than two-thirds of all federal spending, and Congress simply never has to tackle them. And so what we want is a real budget that combines all of these things, right? Our discretionary spending that's currently in the budget process, our mandatory spending that's driving our national debt, as well as the revenue side that we just talked about, Jeff, so that Congress is really forced to confront all of them all together, make sure things are competing against one another. Government is prioritizing properly and cutting back where it needs to to make sure that we're not just adding needlessly to our national debt, driving it to 31, 32, 33 trillion dollars a year borrowing and borrowing and borrowing more money, and then also eventually pushing tax hikes on the next generation. That's the reason we've got to reform our federal budget process.
0: Yeah, there is a day of reckoning on all of this. You talked about uh, tax increases on future generations. Future generations are what are going to end up having to pay uh, for this excess that we live in uh, today. But, you know, one of the things you talked about is this, uh, you know, the omnibus spending bill at the end and this broken system, but there is incentive right now within the system for members of congress to do it that way right you can hide you can you can get a lot of spending and just kind of stick it in a bill nobody will notice at the last minute you're not actually examining if you're going through the 13 regular appropriations bills you're not actually examining spending and and looking at stuff and making sure that this makes sense or this doesn't make sense you're just kind of throwing it in and for people who are addicted to spending and we have many members of Congress who are addicted to spending this is this is a real problem and I and I think reforming that in a way would really make a big difference
1: yeah that's exactly right I mean right now it's it's very easy to run on on spending and say the government spends too much and you're going to go to Washington and you know and fix the problem and then oh, the process is broken, there's nothing you can do about it, you don't want to vote to shut down the government because, you know, we want government to function, we want the troops to get paid and all these things. And so you either say, oh, I voted against the funding bill or I voted for it, stuck between a rock and a hard place, and then nothing ever changes, right? And so even even lawmakers who might be well-intentioned, if they're not aggressive about reforming the process, there's very little that they actually need to do to stop the ref- – or very little that they can do to stop the reckless spending – Um, So that's why we really, at this point, need systemic reform. The whole process needs to be reformed because it's simply not working. Even if Congress wanted to rein in spending, it wouldn't really be able to do so, you know, to the fullest extent under the current process. And as you mentioned, there simply are not enough congressmen uh, and women with the appetite to do so under the current arrangement.
0: Um, Let me talk a little bit about the the work environment that's out there. You know, COVID changed the way people do their work and uh, you know that in 2020 and beyond has just been totally different i mean people work remotely they work i mean there's all kinds of different things but i don't think we've updated our laws what needs to be done in in that area what can congress do to sort of update and change the laws so that so that it really enables the american people to have greater choices in their employment
1: yeah, absolutely. There, there's two big buckets where we're focused. One is on labor union policy, and the other is around flexible work, which you're alluding to. Um, you know, right now you're seeing this big push from organized labor and their political allies to change the law to make labor unions more prevalent, more prominent. Labor union membership has declined for decades as people preferred, um, you know, if it was traditional employment, then they preferred to negotiate their own contracts. And even more so, a lot of people are simply abandoning traditional employment entirely, opting for freelance work, independent contracting, trying to start a business, what have you. Um, And so the unionization process, we're trying to fight back on efforts to make that process rigged in favor of organized labor to make sure that it's fair to individual workers, right? that they're getting to vote on unionization under a secret ballot election, that they're in control of their own personal information and aren't forced to share that with union organizers who can come to their house or, or have their cell phone number and things like that. So that's one. And then on the flexible work side, there's a couple different issues here, um, but really gets to freelance work, independent contracting work, making sure people are still able to be independent contracts, freelance workers, if they wish to be. And the vast, vast majority of people who work as freelancers love that arrangement. The, the Department of Labor conducted a survey a few years back, and it was upwards of 80% of freelance independent contract workers prefer that status over traditional employment. You're seeing attacks on the policy side uh, to try to undermine independent contracting, turn people into employees so that they can be unionized. Um, what we're trying to do is ensure that we can really protect, preserve, and expand independent contracting because as you mentioned, it's more and more prevalent in a diversified, dynamic 21st century economy.
0: Okay, uh, gas prices, energy costs. I mean, we see these some of these energy mandates, uh, uh, you know, clean energy mandates being passed across states and federal government getting into that business. Government basically picking winners and losers in the energy sector. But uh, we also see, you know, this movement by the Biden administration and others to try and stop oil and gas development across uh, the United States and to focus more on on other alternative energy what what is some legislation is there something that congress can do to change this so that so that we can lower gas prices and lower energy costs so that you know we can lower the burden that the american people have with regard to everything that they pay for day in and day out is covered by energy and is increased because of energy policy and bad energy policy what can we do on that
1: yeah, absolutely. I mean, at first, the principle needs to be do no harm, right? I, I think this administration from day one came in uh, and really ra- waged war through the regulatory apparatus on our most abor- affordable, abundant, reliable sources of energy. Um, President Biden campaigned on it, came in, and from day one through the EPA and, and other agencies made sure that um, they were tamping down on the development, expansion, production, transportation of these abundant, affordable, reliable forms of energy. And so, one, we can roll back those regulations, right? We can, Congress needs to conduct some serious oversight, ask questions, demand answers about the decision-making here, uh, and then roll back, repeal those regulations and those restrictions, those decisions to begin with. I think more broadly, Jeff, what we need to do is reform the entire administrative process, the entire regulatory apparatus, to begin with, right? Kind of similar to what we were talking about with the federal budget. The system itself is broken. When you can have regulators, these bureaucrats with very little accountability, way overstep you know, the limitations of their own authority as granted by Congress to create these regulations and sometimes cost hundreds of billions of dollars and let Congress have no say in the matter and have it you know, be fought out in courts over years and years and years. That process is, is obviously broken. We need a more accountable, more transparent process For these major regulations that make sure that regulators aren't pushing expensive, harmful regulations that are inhibiting our energy supply, raising our costs, uh, and certainly not being done without Congress having some say in the matter. So that's one of the other really big long-term projects that we're working on at Americans Prosperity, but hoping to make some serious progress this year through this pathway to prosperity because, as you mentioned, it's become such a big issue and it's on the minds of the American people right now.
0: Okay, um, ESG. Now, that sounds like to some people they'll be like, uh, is that the stuff that's in Chinese food? No, that's not the stuff in Chinese food. ESG. <laughs> Tell people what ESG is. This is something that we're hearing more and more about, and uh, it, it I think it's worrisome to people when they learn more about it. So what does ESG stand for, and why is this a threat to our economy?
1: Yeah, absolutely. ESG stands for environmental, social, and governance, and, and what it refers to is a set of metrics that are being injected uh, into a lot of areas of our economy and into public policy. Anywhere from state pension fund investments uh, to banking policies to re- you know to investment policies, regul you know different regulations, things like that. Um, and it basically is this thing where instead of focusing on maximizing returns, for example, right, if you're a state pension fund, you are by law required to focus on maximizing return on investment, you know, for the well-being of the people who are relying on that pension program. Instead, they're taking into account these ESG factors in their investments, right, their environmental, social governance factors, essentially injecting politics Mm -hmm. into finance and and investment in a way that politics simply should not be at play. And it's what's you know, it's, obviously bad for workers who rely on, you know, these pension programs, things like that. Um, and it's bad for our economic investments. And, and like the other issues that we were talking about, too often it also is, is involving agencies far overstepping the balance of their authority. They do not have a mandate from Congress to be doing this stuff, to be injecting these ESG metrics and that sort of thing into their, you know, into their regulations or their considerations. And yet they are choosing to do so anyway. And so it's concerning on a number of levels, again, because it's undermining our representative government, but also because it's injecting politics into places where politics simply should not be at
0: play. Well, and we have these state-funded pension plans that already are underfunded because of uh, a lot of different reasons, right, because we've overpromised benefits and made them maybe too generous in, in many ways. And now we're adding this, right? Instead of maximizing return, we're, we're injecting this. These are really bad financial decisions, And at the end of the day, it's the taxpayer who is responsible and who is on the hook for some of these public pensions, right?
1: Yep, that's exactly right. And the more and more that we expose that liability through bad investments ultimately could mean worse things for the average taxpayer in these states.
0: Yeah, there's there's no question that is really something that we've got to we've got to tackle. Um, Man, we've got so much I still want to get to here on this, but uh, we're going to do a podcast later on the personal option and all the things that that entails with regard to healthcare. But tell us, uh, just kind of give us a brief overview of the personal options or the personal option and the benefits of the personal option over what we what we traditionally hear the public option that other people are pushing. What what is the personal option?
1: Yeah, absolutely. The personal option is pretty simple. It's a set of policies on the supply side of healthcare, right? Doctors, hospitals, caregivers, practitioners, etc., to expand the supply of healthcare to help bring down those costs and put individual patients and their doctors in charge of healthcare decisions. So much of healthcare right now is geared around the government, right? More government involvement, more government spending, more government mandates. Um, you know more insurance cards in people's pockets, and, and there's nothing. Obviously, insurance is a is a great thing for people to have, um, but it simply is not addressing the underlying issues in our healthcare system. Right? Why are costs so high? Why can't people access care? Are people getting the highest quality care? Do we have enough innovation in the healthcare sector? That's what this personal option is is designed to do. It's a number of different reforms that really go a long way towards putting individuals and doctors in charge instead of government in charge, which is what the advocates of single payer and the public option want. They want more government control. We want more individual, family, and doctor control.
0: That's and that is so true. I mean that we talk about barriers that have been created by government. And in healthcare there are so many of them. I I was amazed that the, the, the few number of people that actually use an HSA, for instance, a health savings account, and how few people Use that, and it's because of barriers that the government has put out there in in regard to that. Let me let me move to something that uh, I think too many people are afraid to touch, and that's uh, immigration. And I want to talk to you about that. Uh, when it comes to immigration and the border, Americans for Prosperity supporting legislation that secures the border and will streamline the legal immigration system. I don't think there's anybody who looks day in and day out at what's going on at the border and doesn't see that it's broken. This is a broken system and both sides. It seems like there's two sides of this argument. Uh, One that's, that's a total national security side and another side that just wants, you know, sort of unfettered immigration. They don't seem to want to give into the other to solve the problem. You're not going to ever solve this problem. I don't believe without border security and it, and seeing that, Seeing the the crisis that's at the border and dealing with that, um, but in order to do that, you've also got to recognize that there is a humanitarian crisis there. Not to mention that a broken border means lawlessness. We should have a system of law and orders. And you, you know, one of the things that our our organization talks about is that. Whether we agree or disagree with laws, we comply with the law. And that's one of our our basic values that we believe in. Your thoughts on what needs to be done and how Congress can come together to solve this this mess, this crisis that's at the border right now?
1: Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head, Jeff. I mean, we, we believe that immigration is a good thing and it adds to the country culturally, socially, economically, and in people's communities but we cannot have legal immigration and, and, and a system that people trust and enjoy if the border is broken, right? And we want people to believe in our immigration system. We want to welcome immigrants who want to add to our country and contribute to our society. We can't have that when the border is broken. And because people lose trust in the process, they worry you know, about their safety and the safety of their kids and their communities and you know, drugs and a number of other things. Um, and so we've got to do both things. And so, We've endorsed a number of solutions. There have been solutions over several years ago, last year, um, you know, and, and hopefully we're in the middle of some conversations now uh, to both secure the border and reform our legal immigration processes. It is possible, in fact, to do both of those things. And in many ways, Jeff, one exacerbates the other, right? Because people see such an impossible task coming here legally, it often incentivizes them to try to cross illegally, which... One not only endangers them and their, you know, them, their families. Uh, it also becomes havoc and, and becomes an issue for border communities and really communities across the country when the border is uh, is the way it is. And so we really do believe strongly that we can have both things, which is a secure border and a functioning, welcoming legal immigration system. And so that's really what we're driving towards this year. And it's going to, as you mentioned, require lawmakers from both parties to make compromises, come to the table, reach an agreement. But it's something. Um, you know, that I firmly believe that we must do uh, for the future prosperity, well-being uh, of our country, because it's an issue that you mentioned is, is being demagogued and tearing people apart on both sides. And both sides can use it to score political points, but they're not using it to simply solve a problem that we want to be solved and that's where where you know we're really going to put a lot of
0: emphasis yeah and I think the American people you know are just fed up they're fed up with this I mean you see the, the the rule of law and it's easy to have one position on the border if you live you know inside the beltway and you don't get out you don't get out much right but if you live you know if you're one of the ranchers whose land is continually being trespassed upon there's a reason for that government has caused that a bad government policy has caused you to lose value in your property rights perhaps um you know and i mean there's just so many things there this is a broken failed system and we've got to find a solution to it we can't just keep turning a blind eye to it any thoughts final thoughts on immigration
1: no, that, that's exactly right. It, that's it. I think this is such an important issue for our country to solve. One, because, you know, as we talked about, immigration is important for our country. We, we need it. We enjoy it. It's a good thing that, that we have a country that's welcoming to people all over the world who want to come here and be part sure. of our, our society and our communities. Um, but we can't have it when the border is the way it is. We need both sides to stop demagoguing the issue, come to the table, and find a solution. And we're hoping that we have an opportunity over the next two years to do that.
0: All right, great. Well, thank you for that. Uh, just you, you talked a little bit. I want to touch on this just one one last time, and then I think we're about out of time here. But uh, you talked about the, these administrative agencies that kind of eat at the role of Congress. You know, Article uh, 1 of the U.S. Constitution is, is Article 1 for a reason. That's uh, Congress and their function to be the lawmakers. And we've seen these administrative agencies come in, step in, and do things and, and really usurp the power and the authority of Congress, how do we get back to restoring that constitutional balance and Congress overseeing uh, the, the uh, executive branch, number one, and two, reining in some of these regulations that, that the executive branches are, are overreaching with, how do we get Congress to, to fill that role again? Yeah,
1: absolutely. This is that's so so vital, Jeff. It really again gets to our system of representative government. Are is are the people making the laws that govern you the people that you elected or is it unaccountable bureaucrats in agencies that you have no say over? It's it's a pretty simple question, but it's an extremely important one. We've gone too far in the other direction. We need laws like the REINS Act. That's R E I N S, an acronym. Basically, what it would do is regulations above a certain dollar value of impact, $100 million, let's say, regulations with an impact greater than that figure must be approved by Congress, right? And so Congress has got to take back that Article One authority. They've got to make clear that they're the ones that make laws, that agencies only exist to produce regulations to implement laws, not create their own laws. We've gone too far in the opposite direction, Um it's very easy for Congress to advocate responsibility because that also means they can't be blamed then when people complain. And so it takes a willingness for Congress to have the courage to take back their own authority, take back the responsibilities that are rightfully theirs. The RAINS Act is one such thing that would do that. But again, absolutely vital to have, have, you know, an economy that provides stability and consistency for businesses and workers have a government that functions and is, is responsible and and you know, transparent to the people that it's supposed to be working for and ultimately to have the branches of that government in their rightful places.
0: All right. Listen, Akash, I really appreciate your, your being a guest today and talking about this pathway to prosperity because I think there's so many things that the federal government can do to it, to better the lives of the American people and stop focusing on kind of the partisanship and the, 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 the bitterness there pass good laws. And I would just say this to members of Congress listening. If you pass laws that better the situation of the American people, reelection will be taken care of. Uh, that That's the bottom line is pass laws that improve the lives of the American people. And, and that's what the pathway to prosperity is all about. Akash, thank you for joining me today. I appreciate it.
1: You got it. Thanks for having me on.
0: All right, listen, if you'd like to get connected with your Americans for Prosperity state chapter, send me an email at jeff at com. If you'd like to stay up to date with the American Potential podcast, be sure to like and subscribe to our channel. And you can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and on YouTube. We'll be back with another edition of American Potential. Thank you for listening to American Potential. You may listen to more stories from Americans working every day to expand freedom and opportunity in their communities by visiting AmericanPotential.com.